support for Market Foolery comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all new Rate Shield approval. If you're looking to buy a home, Rate Shield approval is a game changer, and here's why. Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. And the best part is, if rates go up, your rate stays the same. If rates go down, your rate also drops, so you win either way. It's the kind of thinking you would expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. It's Monday, December 3rd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today, Jason Moser, where he belongs. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for being here. It's my happy place. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Uh, thank you to any listeners who survived the bonus episode over the weekend. And if you skipped it, good news. We're going to be talking <laughs> about the market again. Um, and we're going to dip into the full mailbag. We, gotta, we should probably start with the market itself, which is up pretty big this morning on the the latest trade announcement and in this case it's that the leaders of this country and of China have said hey why don't we take a break for the holidays why don't we why don't we just call a little truce and get back to this you know step outside have a cigarette and we'll get back to this sometime down the road yeah why not um, i mean i mean it, yeah you're right the market is up today it was funny because i think i saw something cross my Twitter feed on Saturday about this, and I mean, the next step in my mind is, oh my God, the market is just going to go ballistic on Monday with this news. Be so happy, and I mean, of course, futures were indicating upwards of 450, 500 points on the Dow, and that's how it opened. And and you look at it now, as of taping, and you're looking at maybe Dow up 150 points. S and P, same basic thing, up just a little bit more than a half percent. I think perhaps the euphoria is wearing off because the fact of the matter is. Like you said, this is let's take a break. It's not a resolution, right? And and it, it always just befuddles me as to why you see such enthusiasm on news like this when you know essentially nothing has been accomplished. Um, so yeah, I mean that's where we are, and and I think that if anything, maybe this buys a little bit more time in that there is not uh, some. Bottom line solution or compromise that has been reached that one side's not very happy with. I think at the end of the day, for all of President Trump's, uh, President Trump's, uh, what he's trying to accomplish in office, I think he still prides himself on being a deal maker. I think this is probably just part of that in figuring out how to reach the most, uh, the, the fairest deal for both sides involved. I'm sure something will. Come out of all of this, but who knows when that'll be? And so, this ultimately just this really is, in a nutshell, why we invest the way we do here and doing the work up front on the businesses that we want to own, understanding that you can't avoid situations like this. If you're going to be an investor, you're going to run into situations like this, and you don't want to be making investing decisions based on these types of non-events. Right, and if you, I mean, you look at the comments from President Trump, President Xi, and. If nothing else, headlines like this are maybe a good opportunity for investors to just pause for a second and say, well, wait a minute, what are the stocks in my portfolio <laughs> that might be impacted by this? And if you're, say, a shareholder of Caterpillar, you know, if you own one of the big automakers, sort of, you know, that situation, then yeah, this is this is something you have to consider a little bit more closely. As opposed to if you look in your portfolio and you own, say, Home Depot or 
Duncan Brands or you know something like that that's not really as exposed to this type of trade talk. Yeah, I mean, good businesses are going to be good businesses regardless of of this type of of, of news. And I mean, it, it made me think back a little bit further uh, to. Alibaba and Jack Ma, and the reason why I say that is the headline that seems to come out of here is that ultimately President Trump is trying to get China to buy more American stuff to balance that trade deficit a little bit, and I get that. That makes sense, right? You kind of want some sort of equilibrium there. To that point, though, Jack Ma, one of his goals really in Alibaba in growing that. Business in the retail space in China was to make China more of an importer, to bring more stuff into China as opposed to sending all that stuff out. Uh, so, that headline today is certainly in line with what Jack Ma's been trying to do with Alibaba all along. And I mean, Alibaba matters. Obviously, it's, it's a tremendous company, does a lot, a, lot of, a lot of business, and is responsible for a lot of the, of the money that flows through China's system. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think for an economy like China's to continue to evolve and advance, they're going to need to become more of an importer. And that's bringing things in from places like the United States or Brazil or Russia. And I mean, those are the countries that Ma has even called out. So, that's in line with what we're seeing today. I'd like to believe they can get to that point. It's it's sometime or another. It's going to take some time, obviously. Um, I tend to look at these types of headlines and think, okay, it's nice when the market uh, pops on news like this. It doesn't make me want to do anything differently. I kind of like it when the bad news comes out and you see the market overreact to the downside because then there is an opportunity, perhaps, to add a company or two to your portfolio that you don't own. Um, and these days, you have to be ready to pull that trigger because news travels so quickly. The market adjusts a lot more quickly than it does uh, than it did uh, ten, even twenty years ago. Well, and to go back to something I've said before. Uh, one of the things I've learned in my investing lifetime is and. When I say I've learned it, I've learned it the hard way. Don't don't fall in love with a price. Don't yeah. fall in love with an exact price where you, where you look at a stock and you say, "Well, I want it to fall to this point," because to to what you just said, we are seeing these types of drops, and they show up in individual stocks in the form of a five percent discount. Yep. And so that's really the question you just need to be ready to pull the trigger on: is okay, I like this; it's on my watch list. Well, now it's five percent cheaper, and what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, I, I I go back to a lesson that my father taught me years ago. Um, I mean, as a kid, and, and I mean, just kind of learning how stocks worked, and, and it was always. He always says he says it even today. He says, "Listen, you're never going to buy at the bottom and sell at the top. It's just not going to happen. When you buy a stock, be ready for it to go down and be worth less than what you pay for it at some point. And and then at some point down the road, you're going to sell. And then you're going to look back there later on, and that stock will probably be higher at some point too. So so to your point there, yeah, don't get too married to a particular price point. Understanding the company, its general worth. The longer that you stretch that timeline out, the less that." That price at that moment really matters. I'm a big believer the price matters. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying buy at any price, uh, but but yeah, don't get too anchored uh, when when opportunity presents itself. Sometimes you just got to go ahead and take the plunge. Let's spend a minute or two on a story that broke late last week, and this is not one of those stories that really moves stocks in any significant way, but it does move the landscape. Of an industry, and in this case, we're talking about the entertainment industry, and more specifically, streaming music. And that is the announcement that Apple Music is now going to be available on Amazon Echo devices. Yeah. And 
I'm curious what you think about this because anytime there's a partnership, any kind of a deal, there's one of the ways to think about it is was is sort of who are the winners and losers? Are are they both winners? That sort of thing. I'm not. I haven't really decided where I come down on this, except I I think this is a win for anyone who believes that smart speakers are growing as an industry and will continue to grow because it. I don't look at this necessarily as a big win for Amazon or a big loss for Apple, although I do think it is a slight win for Amazon and maybe not a loss for Apple, but certainly an admission that HomePod, which is their smart speaker, those things aren't flying off the shelves. Yeah, I think that's it. You got to take the wins and losses in context. It's not something where Apple's going to be going out of business, but I think this does. This is a clear sign of a, of a couple of things, right? I think it makes a lot of sense. I really do applaud Apple uh, for seeing the forest for the trees here and, and recognizing that. I mean, if you don't own an Apple device, then there's really no incentive to use Apple Music now. You may say, well, half the country owns an Apple device, and you would be right. Yeah, I mean, basically half the country here has an iPhone, but but Android is the operating system um, around the world. I mean, that is the the operating system that dominates the landscape uh, globally. And so, from that perspective, I mean, thinking outside of our domestic box here, so to speak, Apple Music has a lot of hurdles to clear, and that's why Spotify, I think, has done so well for so long. Uh, so, to me, we've seen uh, Apple. Looking to make this move towards becoming more of a services company, and they're not going to be reporting units sold when it comes to hardware going forward. On the flip side, they are going to give us more transparency into the costs involved with building out that services business, and I think that'll be really helpful. And so, for me, uh, this is a definite sign. This is a sure sign that HomePod is not flying off the shelves. I mean, I don't know anyone personally who has one. Um, I had a hard time ever making the leap that that the masses would be going out to buy one because it's it's priced at a level where you can't even really have it in the same conversation with an Amazon Echo or Google uh, Home, and and so there are going to be plenty of Apple fanatics that want to have a HomePod because they want a premium speaker. But but frankly, if if you want a premium speaker, I mean, I think Bose has a pretty pretty good brand uh, out Sonos there as well, as well. and Sonos, uh, too. So, uh, to me, yeah, it's probably an implicit admission that HomePod isn't really working out so well. Not a big surprise. I don't think this is anything that moves the needle for either company. I think this is something that uh, people who have Apple Music, it's one more way for them to get it. Uh, speaking as someone who has a few Echo devices in the home, along with an iPhone in my pocket, I don't use Apple Music. I can't imagine I ever will. And so, I, I think, generally speaking, this is less about acquisition and more about engagement and retention of those who do uh, have Apple Music here domestically. And as you said, they're not going out of business. They're still attempting to sell the Home Pods. It does, however, seem like this is one more step towards the bets that, or I shouldn't say the bets, the investments that Apple is making in Apple Music. In you look at they did with Beats. Um, there are numerous reports in sort of trade publications that Apple is in talks with iHeartMedia, which is the largest broadcast radio company in America, about possibly either making an investment or just flat-out acquiring iHeartMedia. Yeah. So, they they do appear to be looking to build out that ecosystem even more. Yeah. And, I mean, if you if you want to be a services company, and by services, I mean distributing media content, then you want, as, as 
big of an audience as you can possibly have. And that means that you have to cross platforms. Uh, because if you are going to just maintain that, that walled garden, so to speak, then you're going to do fine here domestically. Again, you've got half the country's attention. Um, I don't know that you're really ever going to get much more than that. And, and globally, clearly, uh, you're not going to ever come close to that. And so, if you want to be a services company and you want that to become a bigger part of the business, then you've got to reach out to as many partners as you can. And Amazon's a great partner. I mean, Apple's a great partner too. I love to see two companies like this come together. I'm a big fan of Tim Cook's and and Jeff Bezos, and to see these two companies doing stuff like this, I, I hope we see them doing more together because I think ultimately consumers can only win. Quick shout out to Rocket Mortgage because of rising interest rates, a lot of unpredictability when it comes to buying a home. Some folks are getting nervous. I actually get emails about this. Someone emailed me say, "Why do you say that about Rocket Mortgage?" It's like, well, for one thing, I actually get emails from people that that talk about the nervousness that comes with buying a home because, as we said before, it's the biggest check you're going to write. It really is, and there are no guarantees either. Uh, our friends at Quicken Loans are trying to do something about it. It's called the power buying process, and it works like this. Quicken Loans will verify your income, assets, and credit in less than 24 hours to give you a verified approval, and it gives you the strength of a cash buyer. So Once you're verified, you qualify for their all-new, exclusive rate shield approval. They'll lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop, and the best part is, if rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops, so you win either way. Just the kind of thinking you would expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Question from Ed. Who writes? I saw an article written by Dan Klein about 30 CEOs making more than $30 million a year, and it got me thinking. When analyzing a company and putting together your investment thesis, how much consideration do you put into CEO pay? Thanks for all the insight. Love the podcast. Uh, thank you, Ed, for the kind comment and for listening. Uh, good question. You go first. Yes. How, how much do you? Does that factor into your investment thesis? I, I would say it. It's not something on its own that determines uh, the ultimate action to be taken, but it it matters. It can tell you a lot about the individual running the company, and uh, I mean, with that in mind, it can be squishy. I mean, you have to figure how old is the company, how long has it been a publicly traded company, is there a track record. Um, what are the types of things that uh, executives? Are, what, what, are, what are the types of things that incentive bonuses are based on? Um, I mean, I'll look at Under Armour is a good example of a project I did a number of years ago here at the Fool, um, looking at Under Armour and the the incentive bonus program that they had. What were the metrics that that incentive bonus was based on? And that was net revenue growth, operating income as a percentage of revenue, and then inventory turn. And to me, those were very relevant metrics because they tell you the business is growing. They can't really be manipulated too much. So it was nice to see uh, something like that. Um, there is a form that investors can look at 
to uh, get a better idea of exactly how uh, executive compensation is laid out there. If you look at the table of contents of the Schedule 14A, and that's just an you know it's an SEC form. If you go to Edgar, you can pull up the 14A. But there's a table of contents uh, entry there for executive compensation, and you can read through that to get a better idea of who's making what and and how how all of that is determined. Um, I like further to look for companies that where executives have big ownership stakes. And again, I always I always make sure to tell people that's not something that determines yes or no, but it does tell you exactly where their interests lie. If if someone owns a lot of of the company, then that's a lot of incentive to make sure it's performing well. Um, but it's not always necessarily a good indicator. And I mean, I think you could look at Amazon as a mature company. And and Snap, I mean, you know, we can pick on Snap. I think a little bit here because even though it's still brand new, I mean, the fact of the matter is, when Snap went public, um, co-founder Evan Spiegel got somewhere around six hundred million dollars for a CEO award, which is based on just taking the company public. Nothing more than just IPOing, right? Now, I mean, we could argue that Snap isn't really even worth six hundred million dollars at this point, right? I mean, the market's telling you it is. But hey, let's be clear. The math ain't really making sense here yet. <laughs> I don't think you and I would technically argue about that. No, I don't <laughs> think we would. Maybe a listener or two would. But I mean, it, this this goes back to understanding a little bit more about who's who's steering the ship there. And, and I, I mean, I, I look at that and I just think, wow, that that is really taking a lot of credit for something you haven't done yet. I mean, just taking a company public. I'm not saying that's not you know significant. It is, but for an executive to make the kind of money that Evan Spiegel is making. There's a lot of success already implied there, and he's come nowhere close to proving that out. You flip the coin over there, and Jeff Bezos, obviously, over time, has has really proven out there. And his salary is actually extremely modest. I mean, extremely modest. Now, he owns almost 20% of Amazon, so he's got that going for him, too. <laughs> Which is nice. But, uh, it, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's squishy, but those are the types of things you want to look at. It definitely matters. Yeah, I would say for me, it is on the checklist. It's not high on the checklist, but yeah. it is. it is one of those things that I like to see. I tend to look more at the. Not just the straight-up salary, but the combined. Like, well, what yeah. is the salary? What is the ownership? Um, one other thing, particularly if you're buying shares of a more mature company, and this is one of those things that I don't think shows up in official SEC filings, but companies uh, sometimes will announce this. Is uh, sometimes you'll see CEOs selling shares, and it's not really uh, it's not really put out there in any big way that. They're on a schedule, right? I remember this. You know, this was for a very long time. This was the case with Bill Gates, um, Steve Case in the heydays of of AOL uh, was was doing this as well. And so people would say, "Oh, Steve Case is selling shares of AOL." Well, he you know, he just set that up uh, as what I guess the exact opposite of direct deposit. Yeah, it's just the, <laughs> the automatic selling. Um, so that's just one more thing. Once you own shares, but yeah, I think it's it's definitely something to look at. And to your point, it really does speak to the overall ethos and culture of of how the company views compensation, or certainly how the management does. 
Yeah, and you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because another, I mean, another example I like to look at, and and I mean, this was just a this was a fascinating story as as Twitter's IPO and existence as a publicly traded company evolved over time. Obviously, there were some leadership issues there, and Jack Dorsey came back a few years ago to to try to help right things. Um, and and it was really, I, I think these are the kinds of things that just tell you. A little bit more about the kind of person that you're dealing with in the executive suite. I mean, he gave a third of his Twitter stock, which was essentially one percent of the company. Like he gave that stock back to the employee uh, bonus pool. Like I mean, that was stock that he was able to basically give back to the company in order for the company to then be able to attract new talent without having to go dilute the shareholder base again. And so. He was basically saying, "Hey, you know what? I own a big chunk of this company already. I'm going to give a little bit of what I have here, knowing that this is a long-term bet on bringing good talent here. Then ultimately, we're going to be successful and be a lot bigger than we already are." Um, that was a fairly selfless act on his part, I thought. I think his actions with Twitter and Square tell you a lot about the kind of person he is. I think he's a good person, and and so you can look at those those little. Times throughout their their existence as executives to, to get a better idea of the kind of people that they are. And Jeff Bezos, same kind of thing. I mean, you know, his his, his history is is littered with being able to give that money away to good causes and doing things. And we have more seasoned leaders who are kind of coming to the tail end of their careers. Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, whoever they're talking about making sure they give all of their money away. And I think that's really respectable too. So you see those types of things, then they can help help you understand a bit more what kind of person you're dealing with. Two quick things before we wrap up. First, as some may have heard, the market here in the United States is going to be closed on Wednesday, December 5th. It has been declared a national day of mourning in honor of former President George H.W. Bush, with the funeral in D.C. happening that day. So, just be aware of that. Second, as mentioned in our bonus episode, uh, it's now December, which means for the fourth year in a row, the holiday music on Market Foolery has begun. Um, and uh, producer Dan Boyd, he loves this month. Yes, he does. And listeners love this month because of that. So um, tonight is the second night of Hanukkah. So um, we'll leave it to producer Dan Boyd to work his magic. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. If you're not already listening to Industry Focus, Jason hosts the Monday episode, Banking and Financials. Check it out. One click of the button, and you can subscribe to Industry Focus. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Dreidel, 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 I made it out of clay. When it's dry and ready, oh, dreidel, I will play. Dreidel, 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 I made it out of clay. When it's dry and ready, oh, dreidel, I will play. Dreidel, 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 I made it out of clay. When it's dry and bad.
Try it. 